welcome to the first and only vice presidential debate of 2012, sponsored by the Commission on Presidential Debate. And right now, as we welcome Vice President Joe Biden and Congressman Paul Ryan. This Monday, it's no malarkey. It ain't a bunch of stuff. 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. We're done watching debates that don't feature either Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And we begin with a Joe Biden performance I think he needs to learn from. The 2012 debate with Paul Ryan. Very animated, and I thought at the time kind of garish and unorthodox. But when you're debating the Donald, you're going to need everything in your arsenal to throw him off, and we're going to break down every step of it. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, this Monday, the 21st of September. The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for September 18th, 2020. My name is Justin Robert Young. Uh, guys, we got a great episode. We're 46 days from the election, and if that number surprises you, then I got some other numbers that are just baffling. We just got some baffling numbers, and I don't know what to make of them. We're going to do a segment called I Don't Know What to Make of These Numbers. We also got just a mwah, chef's kiss interview. I know sometimes we, we, we try to make these interviews smart for you guys. We try to educate uh, people on issues that they might not have thought about. But sometimes that's issue specific. So if you're not interested in truth commissions, for example, then you're not going to listen to it. And I get it, right? You know, we try to make this show a little bit of a uh, buffet. You can pick and choose what you want. But I'm telling you. You're going to want to stay to the end with this interview. J.D. Durkin, the congressional correspondent for Cheddar, is with us. J.D. is great. He's been on the show before. But that man knows the halls of Congress. And we are going to break down every inch of this coronavirus aid debacle. And it is a debacle. We're going to talk about the push for marijuana legalization. And we're going to get, I sneak a little question in there because I know JD, JD knows the justice Democrats. He knows them. I know he's heard some things. I sneak in a little question about whether or not AOC is going to primary Schumer. I just sneak in, just sneak in a little one. You're going to hear his answer on that. And I think you guys are going to be interested in how he breaks all of this down. We are also going to open up the mailbag. We got some great questions in there, including uh, uh, one from a Christian listener who rightly points out that I advocated for apostasy. And friends, you know that this heathen had to get those little fingers typing to find out what apostasy was. You'll hear that in a second. 
But first, okay, one, two, one, two, three, four, okay, five, six, seven. I don't know about these numbers, man. I don't know about these numbers. I just don't know if these numbers add up. I got a lot of numbers in my head today, and and I I don't know what to make of them, guys. I just don't. Story from Politico today. Headline, Biden's weakness with black and Latino men creating an opening for Trump. Now, I got to tell you, this is something that I've kept my eye on. Ever since the RNC, when they spent so much time talking to black voters. And then I realized, oh, wait, also, they were all black men. (laughs) It was all Herschel Walker. Well, I mean, I guess uh, uh, Alice Johnson, black woman. Diamond and Silk weren't there. It was it was uh, a large appeal to black men, or at least more than I've ever seen at a Republican National Convention. Tim Scott, headliner, right? But then also you start to see these numbers out of Florida where, you know, Joe Biden is within spitting distance of Donald Trump of the Hispanic vote. That's something I have never seen in my life from Florida. But let's go to the numbers. Monmouth poll has Joe Biden at 67% among the combined black, Latino, and Asian voting cohort. Hillary Clinton won that by 74% to 21 in 2016. That ain't good. And specifically, when you are talking about places that you need, you need black vote in Milwaukee. You need black vote in Detroit. Here's another crazy number. Six million. That's the amount of money that the Trump campaign pumped into Facebook ads directed specifically to black men about his record on criminal justice. A Democratic pollster says this is sticking. Donald Trump won 8% of the black vote under 35 in 2016. He's doubled that now. He's at 16%. And again, it's not necessarily that this matters nationally, but it matters in the states that are going to matter. Let's also look at the Hispanic vote. Here's a number that's crazy to me. Now, now this is a an, an, an internal Republican poll, right? But these are not numbers that I think they would show unless there was some kind of belief that this was for real. Donald Trump is currently tied, effectively, with Joe Biden for Hispanic men in Florida. Like, full stop, 40 to 39. Hispanic women support Biden by 18 points. There's a male gap, a male gap that does cross racial lines, but if it's moving into... Communities that are relied upon by the Democratic Party? Who boy. 
I don't like that. I don't like that for Biden. That is a bad, a bad thing. Combine that with the fact that like his remedies for this are doing virtual town halls. Here's another number that's crazy. 20. As in September 20th. That's when you're not going to be able to download TikTok or WeChat anymore. Yeah. The executive order banning Chinese-owned apps is now going to happen. This uh, uh, clarified today by the Commerce Department says that U.S. app stores will no longer have TikTok and WeChat, taking the first steps to enforce Donald Trump's crackdown on the two Chinese technology companies. I didn't think they were going to go this hard on WeChat. WeChat's effectively not going to be able to function after Sunday. TikTok gets a bit of a reprieve, however, as they will not be forced to stop operating until mid-November after the elections. But that gives them enough time that they can complete the deal if the government allows them to with Oracle. Oh, boy. This is this is big. Because here's another number for you. 100 million. That's the amount of TikTok users that are on that app making silly videos. So will Donald Trump put the brakes on this Oracle deal? Will he say, no, you want to know what? We're going eyeball to eyeball with the Chinese government. We told you to sell this app. Sell this app. Keep it in America. Well, you wanted to do a deal with Oracle. Too bad. So sad. Now, the reason why they're moving this drop dead date uh, for for TikTok back until after the election is because they don't want those hundred million people that pissed off. Like that, they 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 do not want to take away something right before the election, even if the idea of being tough on China is bipartisan. Here's another number, 83. That's the amount of Republicans or lean Republican that see China as unfavorable. Want another number? 68. That's the amount of Democrats or lean Democrats that see the same thing. Both of those numbers are from the Pew Research Center. So how do you juggle all of them? And does Donald Trump take the win on this Oracle thing, even though the China Hawks are upset about it? None of these numbers make sense. All right. I got I got one more number and this one is just cuckoo bananas. But it's also amongst a lot of numbers that are just going all over the place. This compass is spinning faster than I can keep track of it. Rasmussen, all right? Donald Trump's favorite pollster during the 2016 election has 
the President Trump job approval. They've got Donald Trump at plus seven. Plus seven. 53% approve, 46% disapprove. That's a crazy outlier. Crazy. Now, I know what a lot of you are saying. Rasmussen, bias, blah, blah, blah. Even if they were right, they were right for the wrong reasons. And I hear you. So let's just judge their numbers against their numbers. All right? The last time that Rasmussen polled for presidential job approval, it was in July, the 12th to the 14th, minus two. Earlier, the 5th to the 7th, minus 10. In June, minus 10. Like, they have buried him recently. And now, plus seven. But let's even put that in context with some of the other polling. The Economist has Donald Trump minus nine. 45% approve, 54% disapprove. Reuters has him further. Minus 14, 42% to 56%. And they're both rosy compared to Politico, which has him under the sea. Minus 22, 38 approve, 60% disapprove. All of these have been taken within the last week. What? The hell do these numbers mean? (laughs) These numbers are going crazy. Like that is an insanely wide divergence. An insanely, that is a 29 point range in which you can place the president's job approval. I don't know, man. I I, I honestly, this segment is not here for me to give you a hot take. I'm literally just trying to lay all of these numbers down so you can also gaze upon them and be befuddled. Now, maybe you look at them and you see a solution. Maybe it's like a magic eye, right? You just keep looking into the abyss and eventually the abyss looks back and you see clarity. I don't. I don't know what to make. I honestly don't with this election. The polling in this election is, it's just weird. I I think on on one level, we're seeing generational shifts, but we're also seeing things that we've never seen before. When has a president just said Chinese made apps? Sorry, hit the road. Like, (sighs) numbers. Keep it one, honey. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I sure did. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you can always be a part of our mailbag. You send us an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. We begin with Half Normal. Half Normal says, I was not impressed with Dr. Sheline's interview. She made the statement that the Middle East country's normalization with Israel is not a very big deal. It really uh, is the need to establish a Palestinian state for the sake of true peace in the Middle East. 
I point out that Dr. Sheline wrote a glowing article on the speech made by President Obama in 2009, uh, in 2009 addressing the Muslim world from Cairo University. It was just a speech, but she goes on to state how the people she talked to looked forward to all the countries working together. She also corrected one person's statement on the Palestinian issue, pointing out that it was important to the Obama administration. In a turn of ideology, Dr. Sheline pens an article, Trump's win is a loss for the Middle East, stating, the cost will be borne by the one party involved in the not involved in the arrangement, the Palestinians. Thank you for writing in, Half Normal. Uh, obviously, peace in the Middle East is a very tricky thing that many, many, many people, uh, likely smarter and dumber than me and you, have attempted to get their way on. And, uh, yeah. I think there's room there's room for conversation to be had. And uh, while I appreciate Dr. Sheline coming on, I thought she was really nice. Uh, I think it's fair comment. Sistro writes, You said in a previous episode that both parties are responsible for COVID relief failing. That is simply not true. As I told you in an email over a month ago, Nancy Pelosi is making sure that there will be no COVID relief, period. She's terrified that an improving economy could hurt Biden's chances of winning in November. She passed a $3 trillion mega pork bill with massive giveaways to the left-wing groups that support the Democrats and bailouts to states with failed Democratic leadership, and she knew it would never pass. The Republicans are more than willing and are on the record as saying that they will pass a bill that extends the unemployment benefits and are even willing to approve another direct stimulus payment. This is something both parties agree on. But Nancy Pelosi is refusing to help unemployed, desperate Americans unless she gets the entire $3 trillion giveaway to her donors or some amount close to it. That she knows the Republicans will never approve. Unemployment benefits could be extended today on a narrow bill that addresses only that and the rest of the corona package could be negotiated separately. Pelosi and the Democrats are the only ones stopping that from happening. This is not a both sides issue. This is a cold electoral calculation by Pelosi and the Democrats. They will let people starve and get evicted if it helps Biden get elected. I would quibble with that only on that this is about Biden. As you will hear in our interview with J.D. Durkin a little bit later, I do think that there is personal pride that she has a $3 trillion deal and then she reduces it to $2.2 trillion, and now she reduces it again, is she giving up yet more ground? When I say that everybody is involved in this, I, I, I just don't think that there is a particular drive from anybody in Congress to actually make this happen. There's a lot of drive to not be holding the bag. The Republicans don't want to give up on holding out against Pelosi. Pelosi doesn't want to give up on the number that she passed a bill on. And everybody on the uh, bipartisan ticket just wants to show that they're not a part of these two cliques. I think we get too caught up in the idea of both sides and less in the idea of if nobody passes something that helps America, then the entire body fails. Regardless of which clique you're on, you're on one team. You are on the representative arm of our federal government. 
So, yeah, even if it's one person who is left holding the bag at the very, very end, to me, it doesn't matter. It is a pox on both their houses. Nick writes, I would like to start by thanking you for the openness you have uh, uh, shown again and again in sharing your experience of 9-11 19 years ago. I'm also 38 years old and didn't see that significance until you brought it up. There is, however, a piece of feedback I'd like to give you. It's something that I would say uh, it directly affected me, and yet I still say it to stand in solidarity with other people of faith. I'm a Christian and not Muslim, but I'm assuming apostasy is kind of a big deal to Muslims and Christians alike. You suggested avoiding anger against Muslims by denouncing the faith, if you have the worldview of not living for this world, but for the eternal, that sort of suggestion would ring hollow. I understand that you, the podcaster, are atheist. Yet we all have to act as our inner self deems just. I'm a sinner. I know that. Yet in the face of difficulty, I've chosen to steer into my faith and not away from it. Thank you for this comment. Nick, to be totally honest with you, this is not something that I even paused on. I was I was in that moment trying to make a cheeky joke of avoiding racism. Uh, and so to be totally honest, I did not even for a second think of apostasy. That was not the point I was trying to make. And I appreciate your correction. I am not saying that you deny your faith in the face of anger. Uh, I am saying that I am in favor of hoodwinking racists. So if you can find a way to hoodwink a racist in a way that does not deny your faith, then I greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. My number one goal here is to advocate for hoodwinking racists. Ryan writes, During your interview with Dave Leventhal, you guys were talking about how Trump didn't have a lot of donors left under the max but Biden still has many donors who hadn't donated to him. Assuming Bernie has money left in the bank when his campaign shut down, what happens to that money? Do candidates pass along their war chest to whomever they endorse? Can a donor donate to a candidate's campaign that's already withdrawn from the race as a way to donate to Biden? Ryan. Sweet, sweet, pure, innocent, beautiful Ryan. You think a politician's going to give another politician money? Oh, my God. Hell no. No, they keep it in a bank account. There are, uh, uh, and Dave, follow Dave Leventhal if you want stories like this because he loves posting them on Twitter just to see how much in debt or how much money are left in war chests. Very often there are not plentiful war chests that are left. That money winds up, winds up getting eaten up by the end of a campaign, and most campaigns end up in debt. Uh, but no, uh, uh, number one, campaigns very rarely end with money in the bank. And number two, that money never goes to whom they are endorsing. That goes to staff and vendors and all that. Running a campaign is expensive. Chris writes, I don't remember a time that a presidential candidate was running on a platform of outward tax hikes, especially massive tax hikes like Biden. I presume that would be political suicide to admit it beforehand. What is the history on that? Uh, 
The history on the language is obviously coded, but the idea of, of politicians running with big programs is not. And even then, Joe Biden is very, very clear that it's not you that'll be paying taxes. You being somebody in the lower middle class, it's all the rich people paying their fair share. And then it's up to the Republican to say, they always say that, but really it means that you're getting charged more money. Or the idea of who is a rich person will change. Matt writes, You are a model of what it is to be open and accepting to others' viewpoints with a willingness and need to keep a conversation going. Aw, Matt. I'm just going to put in, send me a compliment, and I'm just going to read one compliment a mailbag. I'm just going to do it. It's my self-care. Patrick writes, Can you shed some light on this? Why does it seem like everyone is trying to rehab Andrew Gillum? It seems kind of absurd that a guy who was under federal investigation for sketchy stuff that ended with him being found in violation of ethics rules, who was the mayor of Tallahassee while a city was doing sketchy stuff, and then got caught with a male escort and drugs in a Miami hotel and blamed losing an election, would be championed as a guy in need of a redemption arc. He got a bunch of attention recently for coming out as bisexual but I can't see how it makes it better that he was cheating on his spouse. I've also periodically seen local Florida articles that are like, come on, give the guy another chance. Why does the Florida Democratic Party want to make Gillum happen so bad? The only thing I can think of is that he came close to winning the governorship, but in my mind, Gillum versus DeSantis was a crappy race. I think Gwen Graham, the most likely of the other Democratic candidates, would have won handily. Well, Patrick, first and foremost, the only thing Andrew Gillum should have said when he was busted with drugs and a hooker in Miami is, Sorry for party rocking. And as you know, Patrick, as a fellow Florida man, we are then honor and duty bound to forgive them of all their sins. In all seriousness, the reason why Andrew Gillum is... Uh, trying to be rehabbed is because the man's a star. Very rare in politics do you have somebody that's charismatic and plays well on television, and it doesn't matter how much he uh, 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 finagles around. As long as he's charismatic, he's going to have donors. As long as he has donors, he's going to have a future. Now, is that in electoral politics? Is that as a party official? Is that in state politics? We'll see. But go look through the Florida State Senate and find me the stars. The rare. And so when you have one, you're not really willing to part with it. Even if it turns up with a guy named Honey Hammock in a South Beach hotel room. And finally, Oklahoma Randy sent me this screen grab that indeed the Washington football team's name is hilarious as I asked you guys on Wednesday. And it is, and I assume that this happens, this might be happening on your guide. It looks like to be an AT&T. If you have AT&T as your television provider, this is a, uh, a a listing of all programming 
from last Sunday. And indeed, the one o'clock game is NFL Eagles at football team. Go football team! If you want to uh, be a part of this mailbag, then please, please, please write in theyoungamerican at gmail.com. All right, you guys ready for the hard sell? Here's the hard sell. I charge on Patreon for this podcast on Wednesdays. It's only the Wednesday episode. You get one charge per week. Between right now and election day, there are six Wednesdays. Which means that if you sign up for the $3 club, but just between now and election day, it's $18. $18. The, the amount that you will spend or what you will spend $18 on is probably frivolous. You probably spent the dumbest $18 ever. But this, you can make sure that all of the insanity that will no doubt happen between now and those six Wednesdays is not missed a bit because you are going to be in the $3 club. You're going to get that bonus podcast on Monday. You're going to get that bonus podcast on Thursday. You're going to get every single episode earlier than you would on Apple or Spotify or any of the other ways that you download your content because you're going to have that custom RSS feed. 18 bucks, 18 bucks between now and election day. Join the team. Take politics seriously.com. Our guest today is an old friend, J.D. Durkin, the congressional correspondent for Cheddar. Let's just get into it. J.D.'s such a good guy. Welcome to the show, J.D. Thank you for having me, brother. Appreciate, uh, appreciate you having me back. I had to have you back because uh, there is nobody that I uh, can <laughs> book 24 hours before the show that knows the Congress better than you do. And <laughs> there's been a lot of very, very frustrating things from my perspective happening there lately. So I just wanted to see your perspective on it. And, and, and I'll just lay out how it looks to me from all the way here through the fire, the wildfire smoke in Oakland uh, on what's happening of in course, D.C. Of course, man. Hey, hold on. Before we get to I mean, can I ask? Cause sure, I, I mean, yeah. how, how are you doing out there? Do you have visibility? You're able to do your show? Or are things going okay? Oh, it's it's yeah. a little tough to kind of figure out the situation from out here in D.C. Yeah, no, you're well. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. In fact, All right, good. The, the, the one day that everybody was freaking out because it looked like Blade Runner 2049 with the orange skies uh, was actually – not bad in the the AQI, the air quality index, which has now become like a daily check for everybody out here on the West Coast. Sure. Uh, it was it was the days after that where it just looked like foggy London town, but it was it was you know, wildfire smoke as people's lives and hopes and dreams and forestry that was just kind of permeating the air. But other than that, it's been good. Although, uh, uh. Oddly enough, a disaster that seems to have wrapped itself up before whatever the hell this latest round of COVID relief is or will be mm -hmm. if it does indeed exist. From my perspective over here, here's how it kind of broke down. And you tell me where I'm wrong or if I if, if I have the right of it. 
the White House and the Senate GOP would have liked to have worked together on something, but the Senate GOP couldn't get together because, you know, whatever makes for a budget hawk in 2020 said that they didn't want to spend the kind of money that they spent in the previous act. So now the Senate GOP is kind of sidelined. That means that anything, if it's going to happen, has to happen bipartisan. It now becomes a negotiation between Nancy Pelosi and the White House, and they are stuck in a situation where the White House probably wants to go somewhere between $1 trillion and $1.5 trillion. Nancy Pelosi says, if you're not coming in here with $2.2 trillion, then there's literally nothing to talk about, and uh, people have to move out of their houses because they don't have money. Does that, does that about make uh, – is, is there anything that I'm not getting here? Hey, man, for the Cliff's Notes version of it, uh, you, you do a really great job breaking down. Obviously, there's there's a, a lot of nuance and back and, and back and forth. And as always, as is known to happen, even if we weren't within 50 days of a presidential <laughs> election, there's always going to be partisanship and political theater, right? Yes. There's nonstop yes. posturing, and that's on both sides, right? It's oh, really yeah. not just against Senate, uh, which are controlled by Republicans, but you're seeing a lot of posturing on the other side as well. But such is the nature when you're trying to do business at the federal government level, as frustrating as that is for everyday Americans. Well, I mean, now there's bipartisan posturing, right? Because didn't right. Uh, now, now there's the the uh, what is it the 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 promise makers, the the peacekeepers, the, the, <laughs> the peacekeepers caucus. Uh, they're officially called the problem solvers. Problem caucus. solvers. Yeah, I, that's I, I think it. Those yeah. Other I think those other names you broke down kind of work there as well. <laughs> uh, that's a real, it's a really interesting group. And, and I know you follow them and, you know, closely it's, it's basically 50, pretty much 50 members of the house. You got 25 Democrats, 25 Republicans. They really represent the really fascinating, uh, a lot of the suburb districts, but these deeply purple congressional districts that, uh, you know, are both Democrat, you know, have been both Democrat and Republican uh, in recent sessions here. And they're basically just trying to say, okay, Enough with the theater on both sides. We're gonna instant. We're gonna push forward our own version of political theater. Yeah, and take in theory the best of both sides and try and make something work. Um, but it's a it's a fascinating case study. I mean, when you actually, I was I was there on Capitol Hill this last Tuesday morning when they introduced kind of their version of a bill, and it's just sort of interesting to see even who the lawmakers are. Right? It's like yeah. it, Democrats like Slotkin from Michigan, Spanberger who represents the suburbs here in Virginia. Debbie Dingell of Michigan. Uh, Dean Phillips is a Democrat from Minnesota. It's a district that Trump won by 30 points back in 2016, but it's Yikes. still being served by a Democrat. So they're trying their best. Now, both the uh, uh, the the bipartisan coalition and the Republicans in the Senate are proposing things that they know, unless there is a rapid change to the state of play, will not go anywhere. And, and certainly that the Senate uh, proposal by the Republicans didn't go anywhere, while the bipartisan one is certainly more voluminous uh, in terms of the money. It's nowhere near the, the, near the 2.2 that Nancy Pelosi is uh, asking for. Is there any sense, as we are barreling toward an election, that either of those attempts, which on some level are there to move Nancy Pelosi off a number, have done anything close? I would say absolutely not. And I mean, look no further than just how quickly Democratic leadership, the rank and file, your, your eight or so committee chairs, were quick to come out and basically say, hey, Problem Solvers Caucus, thanks, but no thanks. We appreciate what appears to be a good faith effort, 
but your your goals here still fall short. And those Democratic leaders, dude, I mean, they put out their statement so quickly on Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> it's really almost as if like they knew this was going to happen and they knew just because it didn't meet that $2.2 trillion benchmark figure that the whole thing was a no-go. Um, but keep in mind, I mean, that $2.2 trillion number that, that Speaker Pelosi wants to get across the finish line, her argument is like, look, we passed the HEROES Act back in May. Basically, we passed our own version of this. And it was $3 trillion. So we've already come down from $3 trillion to $2.2. And, and we're not really, at this point, willing to go down much further. Um, it's just kind of interesting to sort of watch these sort of moderate Democrats, you know, including like a Ben McAdams, right? I mean, they're, they're trying their best. And the Democratic leadership, <laughs> all the committee chairs are like, uh, yeah, but no, um, it needs to be $2.2 or bust. That's sort of the state of play right now, as I see it. Strategically, this is not something that's going to wear well for Pelosi because we are not talking about what the money would go to. We're just talking about the money. And in 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 those situations, I always find that that grates on people when somebody's like one point. I mean, because because the average American can't understand the difference between one point five million and two point two trillion or one point two one point five trillion and two point two trillion. That's just more money than they can conceive of versus more, more money than they can ever conceive of. So lay it out for us. What is the difference between, let's say, the uh, uh, 1.5 trillion bipartisan effort and what Nancy Pelosi is asking for at 2.2? Yeah, I, I think some of it is just kind of when you, you break down the numbers. So for instance, you look at the Problem Solvers Caucus, this group of Democrats and Republicans, they're willing to get up there and stand shoulder to shoulder and they're say, all right, $120 billion towards unemployment insurance. We want another round of those stimulus checks that everyone wants, uh, liability protections, additional money for state and local governments. And that's all fine. It's just a matter of kind of how much they're willing to give for a lot of those. So for instance, the unemployment insurance, the Problem Solvers Caucus is like, all right, well, it'll come down to basically an additional $450 a week for eight weeks. Well, that's not really what leading Democrats have said for a long time, right? They've been saying, well, no, that figure has got to be up higher to 600 a week. And as for the reasons why, they basically just say, well, that's where we believe the number needs to be to most effectively give support. You know, so I, I think a lot of the posture right now from this so-called, you know, this middle of the road caucus group is to try and say, all right, well, the higher you go with these numbers, the greater likelihood it is that you're going to lose Republican support. And at the end of the day, given where the 116th Congress is, you need to get the votes there if you're going to get actually anything in good faith onto the desk of the president. Now, they're also trying to work a little more into what the Democrats have said. So $500 billion towards state and local governments, which is something that Republicans have kind of scoffed at in the past. The Problem Solvers Caucus wants to institute higher levels of funding for schools and for testing, which is sort of trying to pull the Republicans, I think, and the Mitch McConnells of the world a bit more into the center. But really what this is though, man, I think when you cut through the numbers, it, it, this is about the political theater largely. Yeah. yeah. And I think the sense here is that Speaker Pelosi and the Democrats, they did their work back in May. They passed a $3 trillion price tag. And just the optics of it, if they were to suddenly come down to 1.5 trillion, they'd face a never ending barrage, I think. And rightfully so of questions to say, well, what changed? Why did you want 3 trillion earlier this year but now you're willing to compromise at 1.5. And I think a lot of this is just drawing those firm lines in the sand and not being seen as being the loser of negotiations two months out from an election. 
And then there's the other side, which is that nothing happens. And and that, I think, is the frustrating part, is that you, you would rather not be seen as losing a negotiation on Capitol Hill versus people getting money during a pandemic which has shut down the economy. And 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 that that I think is where at least for the problem solvers and the Senate Republicans, they are trying to make that buzzsaw as menacing as possible for Pelosi mm-hmm. to say, look, Republicans try now granted, the the, the Senate Republican proposal was somewhere between six hundred million dollars and a subway club card with eight hole punches in it. Uh <laughs> but but the the goal there was just to say we tried to do a thing, Pelosi says mm-hmm. no. The problem solvers try to do a thing. Pelosi says no. So mm-hmm. I I can't see anything that would make her say yes short of Donald Trump saying, yeah, 2.2 trillion is great. Let's make sure that that happens. And that's kind of the irony of this, right? Is that earlier this week, suddenly you have the president who comes in out of nowhere and he's kind of blowing up the efforts for a lot of Republicans because Donald Trump at the, at the end of the day, I've always said like, you know, is Donald Trump really a conservative? Well, I know I get no. he's a Republican president and he puts conservatives on the judiciary and so on and so forth. But anyone with an R next to his or her name could go through the posturing of being a Republican. But when it comes to actual fiscal conservatism, there's really been nothing from the Donald Trump era that suggests to me, okay, this is a guy who really cares about debt and deficit the way like a Rand Paul does. Of course not. So suddenly Trump comes out this week and he says, okay, well, the higher the figure, the better it's going to be. I happen to think that's a bit more of an aim at, at trying to boost like investor sentiment in the stock market as high as possible. And, you know, in theory now, you kind of have this weird situation where like Pelosi and Trump actually agree that the number needs to be higher. It's just now you've got the Mnuchins and the Mark Meadowses and the Mitch McConnells of the world who are sort of now caught in the middle. And I think the president has made things a lot more difficult in the last few days for other Republicans who have been trying so hard over all these weeks to get that number lower. But you know, as Donald Trump's inclined to do, he's going to shoot from the hip. He's going to tweet whatever he wants. Yeah. And I think it's only further complicated uh, what a lot of people on his side have already tried to do. But it, it does seem like the the White House has always been closer to 1.5. It, it was it was really it was it was the Senate GOP that was like, oh, what one trillion? Uh, uh, sweet Lord, no clutching their pearls like that right 650 billion was the so-called skinny number that they were going yeah for. yeah I, I think you know even mcconnell the, the 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 deal that mcconnell couldn't make with his own caucus was around i think 1.3 to 1.5 so it's like that that's that's I, I think the frustrating thing for average listeners here specifically if you are looking at unemployment or a, a rent insecurity situation that like we're we're really talking about the difference between 1.5 trillion and 2.2 trillion and nobody i mean either people don't want to go up or want to come down and this is definitely i mean i i can't i mean pelosi said she made the point of saying well everybody you know keep your cell phones on because you might have to come back to dc once you go back mm-hmm. out to to campaign but no one's coming back to dc right jd like this is right. over Realistically, I mean, like Speaker Pelosi this week has said, well, we're committed to staying, but uh, if I'm not mistaken, the House is right now scheduled to be in session until October 2nd. I think the Senate is just one week past that. 
But by the time you hit early October, the sense has always been, all right, one third of the Senate is up for grabs. Everyone in the House is up for reelection. And at this point, it becomes, unfortunately, a lot less sometimes about doing the actual work on behalf of the people and much more about doing what you need to do to maintain the power that you have or to gain seats in your respective chambers. And I think for the the Democrats, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, how much Uh you think the Senate is or is not in play. If you ask 10 different people, you get 10 different answers on it. But of course, the Democratic apparatus wants to do whatever they can to try and at least get to 50 in the Senate. And so if these negotiations aren't seen, you know, listen, both sides are going to point the finger at the other side and then focus on the election. I think it's interesting to see what happens after the election as there's some movement before the end of the year. But the other thing that I, I would bring up that I think is sort of interesting, and I've been hearing this from a lot of insiders and people who are frustrated, you know, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, I don't think really gets enough credit for how good of a negotiator at, to- at times he has been with House Democrats. Mnuchin's got a great relationship with the Pelosi's and the Schumer's of the world. And you look back at the last few years, I'd argue he's been a pretty decent um, sort of ambassador on behalf of the Trump White House. But there's a new person involved with these conversations, and it's Mark Meadows. Yeah. And it's the White House chief of staff who made his his name when he was a North Carolina congressman, as you know. Mark Meadows' job was to blow things up. Yes. He throws Molotov cocktails in from the sidelines to explode good faith negotiations. It's why he became as prominent as he did in the House Freedom Caucus. It's just such a delicious level of irony that now this is the guy who's basically in charge with trying to come up with a negotiation and a compromise. Well, it's like, what in Mark Meadows' life and career suggests that this is a guy who doesn't think compromise is a dirty word? Of course he does, but now he's Donald Trump's chief of staff. The president has installed him as this loyalist. And, you know, everyone I talk to on Capitol Hill says, you know, Meadows is the equation this time around that is making this a lot more difficult than it has been in the past. Meadows is in the parlance of the Godfather movies, a, a wartime consigliere. <laughs> like he is he is not yeah. there for peace. He is there to uh, let the enemies of the White House know that they are indeed marked for death. Uh yeah, Mnuchin really, if you follow, and this is something that I don't, I don't think has really made it out to the kind of national conversation about this, but M- Mnuchin's play here has been to be the unrequited lover. Like he's gone out and said, hey, look, I've called Pelosi's office every day. Every day I ask for a meeting. Every day I'm told she's busy. So he's tried to do some of the like, gee golly, I'm just trying to make a deal here stuff but you're right uh, meadows is is part of it but then again like even if he's the bulldog he's not the bottleneck the bottleneck is is right. is is the, is the senate gop and the idea that pelosi's going to need some kind of give back if she comes down below 2.2 like like pelosi's yeah, going to you, fight on 2.2 sure. mhm yeah absolutely i mean senate majority leader mitch mcconnell i mean the, the, the biggest calling card to Republicans, obviously, here in Washington is maintaining the upper chamber, maintaining the gavel in the high chamber there. And it's because, you know, in part, you know, what's the most successful thing in the era of McConnell and Donald Trump? Well, OK, tax reform at the end of 2017, but they had the House to get that done. But really, it's the conservative judiciary. Yeah. And it's installing these judges at all levels of the government. I mean, that in and of itself is a really fascinating storyline of the last few years. It's not that splashy. It doesn't really get front page coverage a lot. But I think that's what McConnell is so fiercely focused on protecting right now. 
And if you are out there giving a win to Speaker Pelosi in any regard, um, I think that that is in danger. I mean, Senate Republicans are looking at the Tom Tillis's, the Joni Ernst's uh, of the world, McSally in Arizona. These are endangered Republicans. Yeah. And the polling does not look very favorable, at least the outward showing polling. Um, even a Cory Gardner in Colorado. And I think there's a there's there's a lot of worry from Republicans that uh, this election in the, in the Senate could could def- definitely jeopardize the work that they've done. McSally's going to take another L. Like, and in fact, <laughs> I, I, I like I, you say another L, by the way, which is a good reminder. Yeah, right? it's, no, it would she, not be her first. Look, it's, it's the definition of insanity is, you know, running the same candidate and expecting a different <laughs> result. Like she already yeah. lost and and uh, she lost in 2018. It was close. Right. But mm-hmm. that's an yeah. off year election. And and now you know, I guess they kind of expected that she'd look different as a faux incumbent. And guess what? She doesn't. Uh, uh, Arizona is a purpling state and I don't know. I mean, uh, if, if, if I were to take a bet, mm-hmm. I would say, I don't know. Politico ran this story yesterday about the idea of a 50, 50 Senate, which right. I, I saw that, saw that story too. Yeah. Which I almost think now it's my rooting interest. <laughs> like just, <laughs> just to let everybody, cause at that point, we're looking at tribal warfare that is probably even more microscopic than the parties, right? Oh, like, yeah, like we're totally. we're looking at bands of like five and ten senators that that you would be cobbling things together, and in in a certain way, that might be refreshing, <laughs> considering it's not just the same exact uh, uh, Schumer versus McConnell uh, mm-hmm. situation. I, I think the way twenty twenty has gone. Uh, is that we'll have a 50-50 Senate and then like a 269-269 electoral college <laughs> split, right? I just feel like that is truly the Veep storyline that yes, this year yes. is working our way up into. And then we're all going to sit there scratching our heads and say, we don't know what the hell happens next. Now, granted, much in the same way that the traveling political press during a primary loves to salivate over the idea of a brokered convention. These are right. the scenarios <laughs> that like the DC press like has, has nothing but, but endless enthusiasm for because it would be the biggest story of, uh, of, of, of a career. Let me let me ask you uh, uh, some some stuff while I have you. Uh, sure. Schumer. Mm-hmm. Rumors around that maybe an AOC primary in, mm-hmm. in in the next cycle. How likely do you think that is? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I've sort of, you know, I, I hear chatter up in the New York area about it. Um, I think what's really attractive about about that from the lens of the congresswoman is giving the justice democrats which is that sort of progressive advocacy group that represents the so-called squad they represent yeah. rokana as a member giving them a, a really big platform in the senate is not something that's not a they haven't been able to crack that yet right right now they've got seven members in the house they're going to add a few members um it could happen i think on a few issues you start just kind of see schumer get a little jittery he's seen a lot of democrats be forced to move to the left. That's undeniable because I am part of the prowess of the justice Democrats, but yeah, I don't know. I think, um, I think it, it absolutely could happen. Um, you know, I don't know enough necessarily about the, the ambition. It's, it's always tough to kind of figure out the ambitions of particular members of Congress or where they feel like they could have a, a bigger stake. You could definitely do more as a Senator than you can as a house rep for obvious reasons. 
But at the same time, she is already in a position, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, I'd argue, where she has such outsized media attention, where she dominates the conversation and moves the needle as a member of the House of Representatives, the likes of which no one really has before, at least not to this degree. No. Um, so if it does, you know, you're going to have one of these issues where I think you probably have like another Ed Markey who's certainly you know, starting to embrace all these, you know, quote unquote, more progressive leftist policies, despite having been in the Senate all of these years, you get like a new look Chuck Schumer to sort of avoid a push from the left. That would be interesting because I would think he would go the other way. He would say, all right, well, look, uh, 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 congratulations. Uh, you are going to do as well as you're going to do inside New York City, but there's no way AOC plays upstate mm, or in Western New York. Upstate, yeah. Like, yeah. And this is a statewide race. Uh, these are the New York of obviously New York City is the outsized population center, but it's not a desolate state beyond that. You still have, uh, you know, a significant voting capacity there. I would think he would he would almost run more of a like, all right, it, this is a little too left. But at the same time, from AOC's perspective, I'm always a fan of people testing the limits of where they're where where they are. Like and and totally. I think that if if part of the thing for the Justice Democrats are, hey, the leadership of our party is too cautious, too mm. uh, uh conservative, and we need to change it then boy, would you be sending a message by, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, cutting off uh, one of the most iconic heads of this generation of Democrats. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about it. You know, I do remember a headline not that long ago, something to the effect of like Chuck Schumer sort of shedding that angry centrist label. Um, <laughs> but you're right, though, man. I mean, it is a fundamentally different ball game in New York, man. Once you push north of like... I'd say north of like Beacon, which is still a little bit of like a quote unquote, they call it like the Bur uh, a Bernie bro area up in the Hudson Valley. Like it does become a fundamentally different ballgame oh, yeah. where traditionally far more conservative Republican Party politics are, 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 are going to play. And uh, it, it is a reminder that that's a state where the New York City powerhouse of politics, the Democratic Party machine that dominates the five boroughs, like could not be further away from you know kind of what you get as you get closer to the Syracuses and the Albanies of the world. I definitely agree with you there. All right, one more question about this Congress because there seems to be a, a late lamented sentiment that under the crushing weight of these COVID negotiations and the incoming election, what will be lost was an alleged bipartisan push for marijuana uh, uh, legalization or decriminalization. I don't even know exactly what the bill was was going to do, but uh, it now appears to be, pardon the pun, up in smoke. Yeah, it does. And I know this is the disappointment of, of even a lot of the progressives. You know, you just spoke of Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. She, I think her photo is frequently used with uh, a lot of these stories now. You know, the, you know advocates have, have called this the most pro-marijuana Congress that we've ever had. And despite the fact that you've got like two thirds of Americans who support legalization, this yeah. is still just kind of, I, I think seen, especially in the lens of the election as being one of those things that maybe they just like don't touch right now. Um, and, and I think that, I think, you know, they want to litigate. Democrats have, do have proof that in 2018, they say, well, we prioritized healthcare and it won us back the gavel in the house. So those are the sorts of issues that we're going to push for, right? 
Um, but I, you know, I think that I, that is definitely frustrating, um, for, for, especially for weed advocates and for people in the space to look and say, you know, why isn't the democratic party kind of message doing more? Why isn't the Biden campaign willing to kind of go as far, um, as some other Democrats be right here though. I mean, I think there had been hope for the Congress to sort of take this up and you're exactly right. Up in smoke is the, <laughs> is the way to describe it here. The other thing that's interesting to me about weed, man, I, I mean, as a storyline is I've always sort of argued that. You know, the GOP, and I've had this conversation with Senator Cory Gardner before, yeah. who's probably your most pro-pot Republican senator because he represents Colorado, a large part. You know, but this really should have been an issue that the GOP, I think, really could have made their own, right? I mean, you've got the personal responsibility argument. You've yeah. got uh, Veterans Affairs and, and the healthcare conversation, um, you know, state uh, states' rights, civil liberties conversation, all these things emboldened the same stuff that the GOP always talks about. They just sort of ceded the ground on marijuana to the Democrats. But you're right. There's a lot of disappointment, though, that they weren't able to get something done here down the stretch, without a doubt. And that and, and this seems to be just a victim of circumstance. It's it's because now, without a COVID deal, if you're pushing marijuana instead of that, it's, it's oh, well, you can't get rent, but you can get weed. And that's, you know, that's, that's just a non—it's right. a, it's a non-starter. Uh, and it is a shame because I think polling shows like a majority of Republicans uh, are 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 for it. And it's uh, I don't know, uh, uh, a very, a very frustrating thing that this isn't a thing. And also, I agree with you. I'm glad you mentioned Biden. I think this was a tailor made issue for Biden, mm-hmm. considering how he came around on gay marriage. This could be his moment for for 2020. It's about as safe as a revelatory turn would be mm-hmm. for somebody like Joe Biden. And I think it would put Trump in an awkward position because in general, it seems like something that he would support, but he's very mindful of the evangelical vote. And mm-hmm. as somebody who's a teetotaler, it's not something that he has any connection to. Yeah. And, you know, I think the messaging here is powerful as well. I remember Steny Hoyer, some other leading Democrats, they basically get in their pledge to be like, yeah, we are going to take that up at some point this fall. But I think Democrats are also acutely aware, you know, dude, you know this as well as I do. Republicans fight a fundamentally different game. I would say they fight dirtier than Democrats, but they're willing to go places and make things into fights that Democrats just won't touch. And you're right. I think part of the fear is like, well, how can this be weaponized in the corridors of the OANs and the Fox Newses and the Trump Twitter feeds or the whatever it is. Um, but, you know, at the same time, though, interestingly, you know, I, I've spoken with, you know, marijuana advocates who have always wondered if Donald Trump himself might do something with the power of the pen on executive order um, on marijuana. It's not something he talks an awful lot about. I don't think he's re- the president's really on the record as being vehemently opposed. I think a lot of people just sort of, you know, they point back to the Jeff Sessions era where he was attorney general. And we know Jeff Sessions got some views that are way out there on yeah, marijuana, yeah. right? I mean, he's basically, he's literally said, good people don't smoke marijuana. And everyone's like, all right, Jeff Sessions. Yeah, thanks. calm why down. You, well, calm why, down. Why, why don't we get, get with the updated program and not be so many decades in the past? And that includes Republicans who have been critical of that viewpoint. But I, I think that I think the concern for Democrats is that this is going to be weaponized. And you're exactly right. And be like, well, you're prioritizing this. You're not prioritizing these other things. No, Republicans fight, man, and they they fight hard. They go after issues, and they they know how to maximize their messaging in a way that's going to be most de- most uh, damaging to Democrats. And I think this is I think there's been a, a lot of uh, walking on eggshells on this one as a result. Something like this just needs a quiet time. This needs to be its own <laughs> issue. 
because you can't pair it with anything or else it's going to be a joke as, as, as serious as it is. And as, as serious as, uh, uh, how much marijuana has contributed to the drug war and people in prison and mass incarceration at the end of the day, nationally, it's Cheech and Chong, it's munchies, right. it's Taco Bell at three o'clock in the morning. And, and you can't pair that with, Oh, people are getting evicted and they're, and they don't have unemployment insurance. Uh, but here's a, a bag of weed. Uh, right. All right. Uh, JD Durkin, uh, of course, the congressional correspondent for cheddar. Thank you so much. And, and you want to know what we didn't even get a chance. All right. Real quick. Uh, a one sure. minute answer here. Cause I know you got to get out of here. Uh, pivot counties was a series that mm -hmm. you, uh, did to, go and investigate uh, uh, Obama to Trump counties and see how they've gone. Uh, what is your sense as we are now 50 days away from the election on uh, the state of some of the counties that you visited? Yeah, pre-pandemic, my sense was always these counties, there's 206 voted twice for Obama, pivoted to Donald Trump. My sense before the pandemic was they were gonna be backing Trump. A lot of the people from those counties, we went to Iowa, we went to New Mexico, we did an episode in Minnesota, we did the Florida Keys. We're right now in post-production on Northampton County, Pennsylvania. And the sense here is that there's a lot of frustration with regards to how this White House has handled this once in a lifetime pandemic. And a lot of skepticism that I'm starting to hear from actual pivot voters, people who have voted for Obama and have voted for Donald Trump. I think right now my best sense is this is a 50-50 jump ball. If you hold this election 10 times, the, as the pivot counties go, I think the country is going to go. If you hold it 10 times, I think five times it can go for Biden, five times it can go for Donald Trump. That's um, the it, kind it, of so high I appreciate, stakes. Pre appreciate flagging that, yeah. That's the kind of high stakes stuff we love here on PX3. All right, uh, JD, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for joining us. Please go and check out his excellent work on Cheddar and uh, have a great day. Thank you, my buddy. Thanks for having me. And that wraps us up for the week. If you would like to be a part of uh, the this team that keeps this show going financially, head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. If you want to be a part of our newsletter community, five days a week, five stories a day, the quickest read in politics, and the best comments, the best emails, the best feedback, I love this community. I, I truly do. Freepoliticalnewsletter.com. All right, let's go ahead and get to our Titanic $10 tier. Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob Wilson, D Laser, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy Craig, Zombie Doc, Gazer Beam, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Captain Bunzo, Cujo, Vote Boneless Wings 2020, Tally Richard, Memory Pie, App, Crookie, McCrookface, vote for Trump 2020. Martin, government unfiltered. Neil, Archie, Logan, Darren, Daily Tech News Show, Jay Milius, Olin, and Angela, DL, Steven, Chad, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners. Glenn, Wolf, Brand, Chili Scoop, Dustin, Brad, Richard, Peter, just another pilot. Mike, is in middle age, Mike. Jim, the Jen, Ben and Ellen, MacBook Pro, Leon, Frozen Summers, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? Head on over. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at the $10 tier for as little as a dollar. You know, I, I mentioned before, $18 gets you into the, the, the uh, $3 club. 
That means it's $6 if you join the big tent party. $6 and you know you support unbiased, independent, political content from your boy. Thank you. Uh, again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com is the email. Find me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. Until next time, this is your old boy, Justin Robert Young, saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this is the only show that talks about... still going in many ways it's going better john f kennedy was about to do what he does best run for president and win a second term until an assassin's bullet killed the sitting president opening the biggest political power vacuum in modern history and everyone wants a piece of the action my name is Justin Robert Young, and in the new season of my political history podcast, Raise the Dead, we tell the epic tale of 1964. Race riots, vile television ads, a secret Senate sex den, and the most famous legislation to come out of Congress in a generation. Moments that have molded and shaped our modern political world. News dies and becomes history. But tonight... We raise the dead. Vicious, mean, uh, dirty, low-down stuff about uh, all this. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>